Hi, I'm Corey Nathan, and this is Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. Your home for engaging conversations about the topics that matter most in our culture. If you love nuance, if you want to better understand different points of view, if you're tired of the screamers taking all the oxygen out of the room, if you'll enjoy edifying, provocative, and fun conversations among high-profile public figures and regular folks like me, you love talking politics and religion without killing each other. Thanks for spending some time with us. Enjoy today's show. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. I am your host, along with my partner in crime. Is this a crime, Jessica? No. I hope not. Okay, I hope not. I don't. It must be a crime somewhere. But anyway, <laughs> how you doing, Jess? I'm doing great. I'm ready to rock. Can't Jessica wait to talk Stone. to Elizabeth. This is a fantastic interview. We're so excited. Yes, we. I am excited, and we are co-produced mm. by my pal Tristan Drew. And if you like, have you hit that subscribe button, Jess? Wait, smash it. No, you got to smash, smash the subscribe button. What that subscribe button ever do to you? Why are you hitting it? Um, anyway, leave us a review and comments on iTunes and wherever you get your podcasts and give us a shout on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn. We would love to hear from you. And as you already heard, our guest today is Elizabeth Newman. This is really exciting for, for all of us. Um, Elizabeth Newman served in George W. Bush's administration initially in faith-based and community initiatives and then was part of the Homeland Security Council when it was first being formed post 9-11. She later went on to serve as Deputy Chief of Staff at the Department of Homeland Security in Donald Trump's administration under General John Kelly and then Secretary Kirsten Nielsen and eventually a revolving door, it seemed like, of acting secretaries. <laughs> but it was under Secretary Nielsen that Elizabeth transitioned to being Assistant Secretary of Threat Prevention and Security Policy which must have been a unique vantage point to have seen threats that ultimately metastasized on January 6th, which we'll be sure to talk more about. But in April of 2020, Elizabeth not only resigned her post, she became a vocal critic of former President Trump and many of his policies. And she's now part of the Republican Accountability Project, which recently published the GOP Democracy Report Card, something that I am passionate about. I'm so glad that folks are doing this work. Uh, and I can't wait to ask more about Elizabeth. This is such an honor. This is such a thrill. Thank you so much for joining us. How are you? I'm well. Thank you so much for having me. I, I love the theme of this uh, uh, podcast because we need more of this. This is actually how we get to a healthier place in our country. We need more of people agreeing with me. That's what we need. <laughs> I was. It was the whole like talking about politics without killing each other. That That's, part. That, that, part that is good. Okay. All right. I think Don't we can forget do that. religion. Yeah. Yes. Religion and politics. Yeah. Yes. We've been talking about trying to get you on the show for a while. And one of the things that really um, sort of crystallized that for, for me anyway, was um, your interview in the Politico magazine about uh, violent Christian extremism. Um, but the, the perspectives that you shared in there are based on how you grew up. And I, I think we want to start there. Um, can you talk a little bit about your upbringing in terms of religion and politics? Uh, sure. I grew up in the Dallas, Texas area, actually north of Dallas in a, at the time, a small community. It's much bigger now. Um, so I grew up going to actually multiple churches. My, my family um, was uh, uh, kind of unique in that sense. It probably helped me be able to 
um, be more of a skeptic earlier in the than maybe some. Um, although I, I still think that I, it took me a little too long to realize um, how much my politics and faith had merged. Um, but because we would uh, try different churches, I was exposed to different um, uh, different church communities, different um, theological traditions. And give us the spectrum, Elizabeth. Yeah. Where to where were you exposed? Where are you on the continuum? Um, oh, well, a lot of Bible churches. Um, my parents met at a small um, Bible church that was started by uh, some seminarians out of Dallas Theological Seminary in the late 60s. Um, and, you know, if you look at that time period, denominations were kind of on the, the downtrend. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, there was also this uh, heated conversation happening around um, kind of almost the liberalization of the study of scripture. And so one of the, the, the counter swings was this tradition to go right back to the text and to, you know, read the text and interpret the text as it is written, um, as opposed to, um, what was also happening where, you know, what would be considered a liberal theological, um, exposition of the Bible where certain things are, are metaphors and not actually true. Like Jesus wasn't really the son of God. Um, so, uh, so very, it was a conservative, um, uh, Bible church that my parent, where my parents met. Um, and that was, they were, uh, in the closer into the city, that church was closer into the city. So when we ended up kind of out in the suburbs, um, we ended up going to a different church in that community. So we we tried a, a Bible church in the community that we were living in, which was McKinney. We tried a, another Bible church later in life. Um, and in between, I would go with friends to like the local Baptist church, which by the way, now is a mega church, Prestonwood Baptist Church. Um, uh, and when I went to school in Austin, University of Texas at Austin, I went to a PCA church. Um, so all kind of in that conservative spectrum, slightly different worship styles from the contemporary to the um, more liturgical and traditional, uh, especially when you get into the Presbyterian range. But that's kind of where I came out of. Can I ask you about the role of women and how you were taught about the role of women in that context? Um, I, I mean, I was so blessed uh, to come out of a family where um, from my grandfather to my parents, um, at a very young age, you can do whatever you want to do, right? Like it, it was just instilled in me that, um, you know, work hard, get a good education and you can, you can be whatever you want to be. I, you know, when you're a young kid, you don't understand why that is so unique, especially in the South, even though we're talking about the eighties, that was pretty unique, um, for that time period. Um, I went to a, a private Christian school um, from second grade to 12th grade. And um, I remember being in high school and, you know, you're, this is the age where you are introduced to concepts in class and then you're supposed to debate them. And outside of class, we would have these debates about whatever the topic was, but it would inevitably come back around to, well, you know, women can't be a leader of a company or women can't be um, a leader in government because they, they have to submit to their husband and they, um, and they can't lead a church. So why could they lead the country? And now no teacher ever said this. And this is certainly not what my parents taught me, but it was a, it was fascinating to me that there were clearly people in my peer group where this was the norm. And, and you saw this play out. Um, I mean, we had a very, for the time period, and it's still a very good school, but for the time period, pretty 
um, uh, rigorous, critical thinking um, uh, curriculum. And we, you know, we had a few kids um, every year, somebody goes to a couple of the Ivies, like it produces good students, but by and large, most everybody chooses to stay in Texas. And I, I remember um, as we were doing the college search tour, I just was so gravitating towards schools in, on the East Coast. And, um, and you know, I, my mom and I joke about this now, but we went to University of Virginia's campus and I just, I mean, I, I was clearly smitten. And of course she was like, Elizabeth, I just so see this as like a, a, a place that you would thrive in. And I was a rebellious teen at the time. So that meant that I could not go there. Oh man. I liked it. Um, <laughs> so, so we joke now I'm like, oh, I wish I, I wish I had either you had not said that or <laughs> that I had, um, you know, been a more uh, respectful child. Anyway, so I ended up going to the University of Texas at Austin, which um, ended up giving, giving me the opportunity to work on the Bush campaign. God had his plan, but I still wish I'd had that very different collegiate experience at UVA. But the reason I tell that story is that, that like from early ages, I could just tell I didn't quite fit into the Dallas community. Um, that doesn't mean, I mean, I, my family's still there. I love people there. I, my husband and I moved back there for two years to be closer to my family. Um, this is right before we moved back to DC this recent time. Um, but there was, there was just something about the culture where I didn't quite fit. And some of it had to do with a, a Christian subculture that um, it de-emphasized uh, the role that women can play in society. And they don't, they didn't quite know what to do with leaders. I remember being at uh, the church that I attended in college and a, a good friend of mine who, by the way, was like valedictorian in her class, super smart, graduates early. What does she decide to do? She volunteers at our church uh, to do, I, I want to say, uh, uh, youth ministry. And there was a, another guy, her, um, her counterpart, you know, she was ministering to the, the girls. He's ministering to the guys. And just like their skill set, she was administratively, you know, really gifted and could could have led that effort much better. But because he was the guy and he was going to go be a pastor someday, they kept giving him the work. Now, she was fine with that. Like, it, it wasn't like she was pushing back on it. She had, she was much more graceful than I was, especially at that age. But um but it just, I remember watching that going, this makes no sense. Like she is so gifted. Why are they not using that, those gifts? It wouldn't have meant that she was, um, even if, you know, people have different views on egalitarianism and complementarism, it wouldn't have uh, violated the uh, core principle of complementarianism that uh, a, a male should be teaching as head of the church. It, it wouldn't have violated that at all. But there was built into this system uh, the idea that we need to invest in the men and I don't know what to do with the women. <laughs> and I, th I think there are complementarian churches that are doing better at this now than they were 25 years ago. But there was an absolute signal of, um, hey, ladies, you might love the Lord but if you have this leadership set of skills, we, we don't know what to do with you. And, and that was fine. I was interested in government, um, but it also, it also made me not feel at home. Like I, people just didn't know what to do with me in that culture. Yeah, I'm sure that uh, Corey has questions, but I, I feel like a kindred spirit to you just five minutes in. 
Yeah. <laughs> this is, and, and Corey knows because he's read my book, which talks a lot about the same kind of set of dynamics. I grew up in Mobile, Alabama, and it was, it was so much cultural Christianity. And if you didn't completely buy into it, you were not one of them. Um, I, I think what I'm hearing is there, there was like an early sense of justice and injustice in how you viewed that was a little bit different than the sense of justice and injustice around you. And I wonder if at all that was part of your draw to government service or part of your interest in the forces that make people, you know, be extreme thinkers on one side or the other. You know, that's a really in interesting way you frame that question. Um, and I, and I laughed because um, I don't know that before, say, three or four years ago, I appreciated that um, how important justice is to me. And it was um, going to my children's um, at parent teacher conferences. And uh, my my son is two years two years ahead of my daughter. So my, you know, we we picked up pretty quickly from teachers, you know, like he, he has a strong sense of justice. And okay, we'll work with like uh, making sure that he appropriately communicates that as opposed to, you know, being a little bit of a, like, this is the way it's supposed to be. And, um, you know, the good side to that, of course, is they defend, he defends people who are vulnerable. Um, well, then my daughter comes into school and sure enough, like within like the first parent teacher conference is only like six weeks into school. And so we, we went to back-to-back -back conferences and both of them, both teachers, uh, for both kids are like, they have a strong sense of justice. So we might, you know, want to help them with the appropriate way of channeling that great energy. <laughs> My husband and I are looking at each other like, okay, we might need to tone it down a little bit at home too. <laughs> like clearly this is uh, being uh, learned as well. So, um, so yes, I, um, I, I apparently do have a strong sense of uh, justice and injustice and wanting to right what is wrong. Um, I am uh, certainly earlier in my career, I had to uh, learn how to be um, more patient with how slow processes work in government. And, um, and that, you know, that comes with it a, a good side, especially um, when you're a political appointee, like the, the beauty of the system where you have civil servants and political appointees, civil servants keep things steady. Um, they're managing programs. They're there for the long haul. Uh, political appointees, um, put it in today's terminology, can often be disruptors. And, and you can do good disruption. Sometimes we do need things shaken up. As we saw in the last four years, uh, sometimes too much disruption uh, produces a lot of chaos and you are not able to make as much progress as you uh, might have hoped. Um, but uh, certainly coming into the federal system and working on uh, national security issues, um, post 9-11 mission is, is, is very, very much a part of what drives me, um, you know, trying to keep the country safe. Um, and, uh, and especially now that we're 20 years post 9-11, um, trying to be honest about where we, uh, where we weren't as successful as we thought, uh, where we made wrong calls about the right way to keep us safe. Um, you know, thankfully we, we really, um, have not seen an, another terrorist attack the size and scale of 9-11. So one, by that metric, we were successful. Um, but if you speak to communities, uh, especially the Muslim community um, in, the, in the United States, they, they um, still feel a, a great sense of um, 
scrutiny and marginalization. Um, and, and we need to learn from that and make sure we don't repeat those mistakes, especially as we're facing uh, uh, the next uh, threat, the emerging threat of, of violent white supremacism and anti-government extremism. You were part of the Homeland Security Council in the years just after 9-11 mm -hmm. and the Department of Homeland Security um, when it was first being formed. I'm interested if you can compare and contrast your yeah. experience early on in the Bush years compared to your year, like especially the last year or so, it seems like in the Trump administration was like Trump bad man on steroids. The impression I have of those first that first period before 9-11 was uh, of, you know, it was professional, it was organized. They um were uh, you know very disciplined and George W. Bush as a personality is just a very disciplined person has the same morning routine um, and you know that filtered down when I eventually worked at the White House I was um, the assistant to the first Homeland Security Advisor uh, John Gordon um, this is after uh, Tom Ridge goes to stand up the Department of Homeland Security so Tom Ridge was there he leaves and, and John Gordon becomes the Homeland Security Advisor and I got to be his executive assistant um, and so I was working in the West Wing and um, it was it was there was just such a rhythm and routine it was long a long you know day but um, very disciplined very organized um, Post 9-11, uh, certainly the agenda shifted dramatically. I was still working on faith-based initiatives. So you all of a sudden you saw it was the, the air sucked out of the room and you're like, okay, I guess we're not working on uh, education issues and faith-based issues. I mean, they eventually started working more on domestic agendas, but rightly all hands on deck were focused on um, what did we need to do to protect the country and uh, find bin Laden. Um, and, uh, but even there, you know, even in the, you know, there's always a fog of war chaos aspect to it. Um, there was still a, a, a discipline and an organization and you knew who was in charge. I'm not saying that there wasn't backbiting or infighting. There always is in Washington, DC. It's a kind it's a city made of, um, egos and power driven people. So there's always going to be that element to it. But it, when you have somebody at the top um, and his chief of staff at the time, Andy Card, um, also you know, really emphasized this to us as a staff, this is not about you. This is about the American people. Um, when I left, I did my uh, departure photo and my family got to come into the Oval Office. We got to meet the president. It was really special. And I've, I had not been in the Oval Office before. I was really um, just so taken by the moment. And I remember saying uh, to, to the president, um, it's just been such an honor to serve you. And he was like, Elizabeth, you didn't serve me. You served the American people. I'm not getting my George W. Bush voice right. But, but like that has stuck with me, right? Like, yes, sir. Yes, sir. I serve the American people. Um, that is so different than what Trump, the Trump team was about. Um, to, the, the reason I probably got into the Trump administration is because of uh, the person that recruited me ended up being the chief of staff to John Kelly, and they were so desperate for getting anybody with experience in that they didn't do much scrubbing. Um, I, I heard they had to ask you like three times before yeah, you accepted. Yeah, yeah. well, it so was you had like, reservations, it sounds like, going in. Oh, very much. I, my husband still will bring it up like, you know. 
our life could be a lot happier and healthier if we were still in Texas. Um, my family still wishes that's what it was. Uh, no, like the two days after the election, I got a phone call. I'm like, nope, not interested. I mean, I, I thought about it for 30 seconds and I was like, nope, not, not my kids are young. I'm not a big fan of his, like, nope, not interested. But you did vote for Trump in, in 2016. Yeah. 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 But you had, you had reservations. Oh yes. Yeah. I mean, it, it's the kind of thing that if I had, if it, I had voted the next day, I might've changed my mind. I mean, mm. Texas was going red. He was, he was going to win Texas. So in some yeah. ways it was like, you know, it was more of a symbolic vote. It was yeah. Just... And, um, goodness, like I, you know, I've, that, that period of time, I, I wasn't paying too close attention to the election. There was a bit of, we had left DC and I was trying to decompress and um, we had lived in Denver and Seattle and we were in Dallas at the time that the uh, election started picking up in 2015. And um, I, you know, vaguely aware of some of the grotesque comments that, that Trump had made on the campaign trail, but it, again, like the, the conventional wisdom was there is no way this man can win. I remember people asking me, my family in, in Texas, what do you think about Trump running? I was like, don't worry, there's no way. It's just mm -hmm. like, there, there is no possible way this works. Yeah. So when he got the nomination, there were a lot of conversations like, what do we do? Like, this is, this is so, um, not the Republican Party that we've all belonged to. And it, it really was, um, I think, for many, the, the kind of this uh, shaking, shaking and uh, awakening of, um, you know, and, and what we would call a, a political realignment, right? Like there, there was a way that Republican Christian politics was supposed to work. Yeah. And 2016 did not go by that playbook. And so you like there was just a lot of wrestling of of how how do we reconcile this? Do uh, do we still based on vote based on pro-life and, and, and abortion, even though this man has no character and does not is not consistent with biblical values? So my husband and I read a lot um, of, of thinkers and theologians and all that kind of stuff. He came down on the side of. I'm just writing a candidate in. Um, several members of my family did that. I uh, just, I, I, I don't know. I don't know. I just, I kind of, I still regret the vote. Maybe it was supposed to be because I probably wouldn't have been able to work in the administration if I had voted, if I had written in a candidate um, uh, because they did ask that question, who did you vote for? And I wasn't going to lie. Um, but yeah, by the time you get to, the fact that he won, I think that shocked all of us. Um, and then the first ask was an easy no. The second ask, John Kelly had been uh, nominated and he was impressive. And I was like, oh, you know, it would be, it would be nice. Like he's somebody I could enjoy working for. Um, but no, uh, it's still just the timing's not right. I'm not, this is, this is not the president I want to associate myself with. And then the third ask was right before the inauguration. And this was a conversation with somebody I trusted that said, it is, I'm very concerned for the safety of our country. They're bringing people in and putting them in positions that do not have the qualifications to do um, the security work that this department needs to do. Uh, will you please come in? And that's kind of what, you know, look, I, I was formed by 9-11. It is, um, and I have enough awareness to recognize that 
uh, especially now that we have um, the next generation of workers in the workplace, like they, they view the world differently. It's not, the mission is not nearly as a guttural reaction as it is for me. Um, but man, you, you put that um, on, on the table of like, we're concerned <laughs> that we're not going to be able to keep the homeland safe. You're like, okay, all right, I, I'll pray about it. And I prayed about it. And um, a lot of conversations with my husband, <laughs> some were more intense than others. And we, um, we eventually decided to come in, but it was, um, in retrospect, it was the right decision. I also hope I never have to do something like that again. It was some of the most difficult years I've uh, ever had. I, I, when I looked at the record, <clears throat> I was surprised that you lasted as long as you did. <laughs> I mean, you, it was it was barely over a year ago that that you finally resigned. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was in part the um, I was not an expert on immigration, so I could avoid those issues. Um, I was that first year I, I genuinely was doing stuff that we don't necessarily find that exciting. Usually, um, uh, you know, schedules and managing the executive secretariat process that gets the papers to the secretary that he has to sign. Um, so that first year was a lot of uh, more uh, operations and management. Um, but the second and third year, when I moved over to the policy office, one of the, the thing that I couldn't avoid is my team. Uh, one of the teams that I was responsible for was the screening and vetting team. And they handled um, the uh, travel ban uh, implementation. So that they had, there were a whole bunch of things in that executive order that they were responsible for. You, you came out of faith-based uh, operations initially. You, you always in the background, I, I, I can tell, have your faith as a guiding principle for how you want to see government work. You also mentioned how, how Muslims felt so alienated right after 9-11 and still do. So how did, how did watching this messaging around the Muslim ban unfold hit you on a personal level and and you're, you're getting into some of the mistakes that you think were made maybe rhetorically um but but was there a valid argument there but it was just too late um let's start with the way that he messaged it was horrible horrible and it, he it, you know the, here's an interesting fact he called it the muslim ban once on a campaign trail to um i now i did not go back and double check this but a friend of mine uh, did, and they, they claim that that was the one and only time that he did it, but it stuck. Right. Yeah. And it, and it left such a strong impression with the globe, um, that it has but hurt it was the same ban that Obama had done. It just it, was rhetorically treated differently. Uh, sim so yes. There were many of those same countries in the Muslim ban. Now I'm using it, <laughs> um, that, that president Trump initiated, right? The, the the country list came from a piece of legislation that the Obama administration negotiated with Congress after the um, the the series of attacks that kind of were the the rise of ISIS um, in the Western world. That list, you're right, did come out of the Obama era, meaning it was it negotiated with the Obama administration. He signed off on it. It was legislation that was passed by um, the the Congress. Um, but what Trump did was take it a bit further um, and made it such that nobody from those countries can come here. 
and unless you get, basically get an, some sort of exemption and um, that those exemptions were handled by the State Department. So I never got to understand uh, fully how they were handling them. But the impression I had is that they didn't dole those out very frequently. And I remember at the time, General Kelly said he didn't even know the EO was coming. So That's how right. did it hit you? When, when you found, did you know it was going to be the disaster that it became? So I wasn't there yet. I didn't come um, into uh, DHS until February of, uh, late February. And that executive order dropped, I want to say the second, second week of the end administration. Of the yeah, yeah, it's like January, end of January. Um, but I was, I certainly heard about it from the people that I was talking to. They were like, this is chaos. This is a nightmare. Mm-hmm. Um, they, we didn't know about it. Um and, uh, you know, it just, it, it was a, a interesting, um, uh, what's that word uh, where it's like, it's the foreshadowing of what the entire Trump administration ended up being. They shoot first and then aim later. Yeah. They, um, they think that you can take talking points from a campaign trail and make it policy. It just, it, and there was, there was a sense at the beginning, like, oh, they're just new and they're learning and you get into about a year of it and you're like, they don't either, they don't want to learn or like it's intentional that they're not learning because they, they want chaos to reign and they think that's the best uh, business model for them. As you when, disc- I, I just want to pick up on the empathy that you expressed earlier for the Muslim community in the United States. And so by the time you get into the government and you, you, you're watching this unfold with the Muslim ban, how, are you thinking that this is going to create new extremists or, or bad feelings towards the government? I mean, it, it's not exactly uh, a win for the U.S. government to come after the, the Muslim community with, with that type of messaging. Yeah, I, I think at the time we were more focused on the the operational chaos for the department and just triage. Know, yeah, like just very like, you know, why this doesn't have to be that hard. And in kind of a sense of like the people that have been in government before looking at the people that had not been in government before going, can you guys just let us um, do our jobs? (laughs) Sorry, (laughs) the puppy is getting into something. Let me, we're talking about very serious things. And Noel, the puppy is like, I'm having none of it. (laughs) Yeah. She's like, let me eat. Levity. This moment Um, calls for levity. But, (laughs) but you're absolutely right though, because the, the, the dynamic of, um, ostracization and marginalization, um, really hatred towards certain groups of people that the president kind of aimed at over and over and over again. And he, he did it with um, illegal immigration, right. um, com- calling uh, migrants criminals and um, rapists. And, and it created this uh, perception in America's, you know, collective mind, not of everybody, but certainly if you're listening to that echo chamber of Fox news, uh, over and over again, um, that, you know, a migrant trying to come to the United States is dangerous. And, and that's actually not true. The facts actually support the opposite, that there's less crime in immigrant communities, um, compared to the average American community. Um, and we now know through uh, some research uh, that any place that Trump would do a rally and use language uh, uh, that was antagonistic to Muslims or to um, uh, Hispanic communities, uh, immigrant communities, um, and then at times towards the end, 
Asian-Americans. Asian-Americans. Um, and then Black Lives Matter became more of a thing in the last in the last year as well. Anytime he would say that, um, you would see hate crimes go up in that community over the next few few days. Wow. And they, they've been able to like, I, you know, I'm not an academic research scientist, but you read these studies, they controlled for a whole host of range of explanations. It was not, you know, plausible. It was, there is a direct connection here. He speaks, hate crimes go up. So if you were a member of the Muslim community, if you were black and brown in this um, country for the last four years, you have been more ostracized or more uh, feeling more hate than you did before. Now, that's not to say that we haven't battled with it. I mean, it didn't just come about because of Donald Trump, but Donald Trump made it worse. And I remember meeting with um, a, a woman at a mosque uh, in, in the Denver area, and she we were talking about a prevention program. I was explaining what we were trying to do. Um, they had been strong partners with um, one of my staff members that worked out there. So I was thanking them for their partnership. Um, it was a productive conversation. I'm learning things. And at some point, she just was like, I just, I just want to ask you a question, and I don't mean to be rude, but does anybody care that I'm scared to bring my children to services? Does anybody in the government care that my community has been threatened? You guys keep wanting me to help you with your terrorism problem, but what about the fact that my community wow. is being targeted? And I just remember feeling um, too sucker punched. Uh, you know, one, no American should ever have to question whether their government cares about protecting them. And um, two is the, the mom thing. Is like, I cannot imagine. I mean, I remember every time there's a church shooting and I go to church the next Sunday and like, I'm, I'm remembering the exits. I'm remembering, like, I hate, I mean, that's just part of, I've watched too many videos. So I just, I, it's my own personal thing that I have to deal with. Um, but she dealt with that every day yeah. and every, every week, it wasn't just after a shooting. Um, and I, um, that has stuck with me and, and it's a direct it's a directly related to the environment that he ushered in where he made it um, okay to uh, to criticize people based on the, their race or their religion. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I, I have to say that like the, the, the funny, not funny, the irony, the irony is that he starts his administration with this, I'm gonna be tough on terrorism and I'm going to travel ban. And, and those of us in conservative national security culture, uh, uh, circles who hadn't been in government because the Obama administration had been in government, we come back in. They made some plausible arguments at the beginning about why certain restrictions might be needed. It became really clear to me and to those that I was working with in the national security community, those restrictions were not needed anymore. And we advocated, like we've done our reviews, we're comfortable that if somebody is coming here and they are known in the world to be associated with terrorism, we're gonna find them and we're not gonna let them in. Now that's, there's never a hundred percent guarantee, but we're really good at it. And so we, we don't need those restrictions anymore. And what, and I was so naive. I just, I really thought like, if we lay this out and we educate the people, 
um, that had kind of been advocating for these policies, they'd be like, great, that's wonderful news. I'm so glad we can take credit. We can tell the American people, we have made you safer. We did what we promised to do. You don't even have to tell them that, that actual logic and, and, and yeah. the record would work. That's, yeah, uh, and, and you don't even have to tell them nice. that <laughs> it started under the Obama administration. Just, just take the credit. Yeah. Turns out that's not what it was about. And that's why I've spoken out since leaving like this for for some, not all, for some in Trump's administration. This was um, a nativist viewpoint that they were trying to implement through national security policy. This was possibly racist and xenophobic. Um, And they were trying to keep people out, uh, period. I want to ask you a little bit about that. I'd heard you saying in interviews well before January 6th, even back in early 2020, that early to mid 2020, that the threat of domestic terrorism from right wing extremist groups was much greater, certainly than that of anything we'd seen or will see from Antifa, as well as from Islamic terrorist threats. I'm curious, how early did you come to that determination and how did the Trump administration handle those assessments? Um, you know, we, we presided over that shift, right? Like where the, the lines on the graph cross, um, we, uh, and I actually went back and looked at the data recently, you could see the growth in extremist groups, um, during the Obama administration, but the, we don't, uh, the government itself doesn't have good data collection on domestic extremist groups. So the government wasn't seeing it. It was the, um, academic researchers and some of the, um, uh, group, the, the uh, advocacy groups that study hate crimes that were seeing this rise in uh, extremist growth in the, in the groups. So I, I mentioned that to say there were some within government that raised the alarm as far back as 2009. Um, there's a lot of um, good, it is completely rational for the citizens and the Congress to question why the government didn't see it sooner. The answer I think is actually relatively simple. It's not um, a, uh, a even an unconscious bias thing. It's that the government didn't have the data and the government is so predisposed in the security community to trust government data, especially since in the intelligence world, when you're looking overseas, historically, only the government had the ability to do overseas intelligence collection. Now that shifted even in the sense that um, we're an increasingly global society and and you can uh, collect data from any number of sources now um, and you don't necessarily need a high powered intelligence community. We still do, but you get what I'm saying. Um, in the domestic world, it's, it's kind of flip-flopped. You have these constitutional restrictions, so we can't go and collect data just for data's sake. So in some ways, academics and advocacy groups have a better pulse on what's going on. And so I think that's why we didn't see the shift happening um, during the last decade. You get to 20- Rhetorically, weren't we really focused on exterior threats or threats that came from a homegrown extremism extremist radicalized by somebody outside the country, but we were still looking outside of our country for That's those right. threats. Absolutely. And we were, there was a lot of focus on online radicalization, but online radicalization being done by ISIS or by um, a, an Islamist jihadist uh, uh, terrorist um, philosophy. And, and you've said that the ISIS playbook has actually begun to be used mm, now by yeah. domestic yes. extremists. Right. 
absolutely today's white nationalists um, are borrowing from the ISIS playbook. Um, but um, I don't want to give the impression that the white nationalists are just, you know, showing up and new to the game. If, if um, you look at the history of the white power movement, uh, they adopted a decentralized cell structure back in the 1980s, um, intentionally designed their movement to be leaderless uh, because they believed they'd be able to operate with more freedom. Uh, it would make it harder for law enforcement to uh, break into their cells. So they've been operating that way for decades. They also were early adopters of using the internet to spread pop propaganda. They stole, um, they stole money uh, through a variety of criminal enterprises to buy computers, give them to their followers. And then they were using the, you know, the early, like we're talking 1985, 87 internet to share uh, propaganda in a way that that way law enforcement couldn't keep tabs on what was going on in their community. So they have used the internet for quite some time. The, the borrowing of the playbook though, is a reference to the fact that we were seeing um, people becoming radicalized online. This originally started actually pre-ISIS in 2006. We saw um, a, a very, uh, um, active uh, recruiting where people were connecting online and then leaving to go overseas and join a fight somewhere. Um, yeah. and, and then that morphed into, you started to have um, imams, teachers uh, speak in English to encourage people to join the fight. Um, that was the 2000. Exactly. Yeah. Um, 2009 era. And then um, eventually they started putting out ISIS and Al-Qaeda magazines uh, that were in English uh, translations um, and, you know, fairly sophisticated videos um, for their audiences. They became social media content generators and that drove, um, you know, people being uh, drawn into the movement. And originally, of course, with ISIS, the goal was to get everybody there to the caliphate to help set up the caliphate. Once uh, you had some military pressure on them, the signal was sent, no, 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 don't come here. Do your, your jihad where you are, um, bring your own weapon to the fight, find a, a, a vehicle, find a knife, find a gun, and go do as much damage in the name of ISIS, right? Like create terror where you are. And, that, so, and that's really when you come into 2015, 2016, when Donald Trump is campaigning, that was coming to um, the forefront, and it was it was uh, concerning for the counterterrorism community. It was concerning for the the country. So it makes sense that he was talking about these issues. He just was using language that most in the counterterrorism community would be like, "This is not helping us in, the, in combating this fight. It's actually driving people um, uh, to uh, feel sorrow and empathy for." Um, potentially a, a, a violent jihadist um, approach to their faith. So, um, and at the same time, are we seeing white nationalists at that same time building on the progress that ISIS has made in terms of recruiting strategies? Yeah. So, what what you we 15, noticed time period? I mean, I, I don't think the government was seeing this. I think some of the outside groups were seeing it. But in now looking back, you can see that they were learning from what worked for ISIS. How did you get that person recruited? To the point now, and I have I have her book here, um, Cynthia Miller-Idris um, wrote a book called Hate in the Homeland. And um, it's 
talking about um, the what the, she calls the global far right. And and I by 2019, we're having conversations with our counterparts overseas that they're seeing this phenomenon. They call it right-wing extremism. The right-wing extremist movement um, recognizes that the way to recruit is through um, uh, rather mainstream means, um, concerts, music. Um, they, they have posted a series of YouTube videos on cooking. So here's oh, how wow. to cooking classes. And you, you go to- Sorry, people. what's the intersection between white supremacy and cooking? Well, there is, she explains like there is kind of this go back to the, you know, that like it's a, a vegan lifestyle of going back to the basics of the way, you know, it was intended. Um, so there's this inner mix of things that you might not necessarily think like you think of a vegan and you tend to think like, oh, they're probably liberal in their um, belief system. But like it's all intermixed wow. now. And um, so they do these cooking shows and maybe by the third video, they introduce some concepts that you would not necessarily know are white supremacist of uh, ideology, um, but you're already kind of connecting to them as a, you know, a cooking show. So you keep watching and, and by the end, they've kind of got a pitch that you might actually be um, uh, like open to, right? Of like, you know what, we are getting replaced. You know what, like life is changing too fast and we need to, we need to be proud of who we are. Um, and so they're, they're very um, persuasive in their messaging. It is not, you know, you're not going to see today's ex uh, white supremacist extremist um, with a bunch of tattoos and a skinhead. Like they're going to wear khaki pants like what we saw in Charlottesville. They are trying to be like the dressed up, polished version of white supremacy. And so they're not always obvious about what they're recruiting you into because they want you to find your belonging with them before they maybe introduce some of the more grotesque concepts. Um, but anyway, that, that's kind of the biggest challenge we have right now is, is how seductive they can be. And I, I, I want to make... pivot from there to, to the discussion that we were starting as well with um, the recruitment inside uh, seeker sensitive Churches. Yes. I read my mind. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and know, so this, there, it seems like there was fertile ground already happening with, and, and to, to describe to our audience what seeker sensitives, this was a movement in, in, I guess, the late the 90s, 90s, the mm -hmm. early 2000s, um, where there was just a massive evangelical push. And it didn't really matter if people were discipled, which would be sort of learning the underlying theology, um, getting into community. It was really just a numbers game that a lot of churches went through. They would, um, the, the, the preachers would talk a lot about uh, very basic uh, one, two, three, four steps to get saved. And from there, you know, you were a, a member, then we counted you as a member. So now then we have this big church and we can take credit for all of these souls. But you're, you argue in that political art, political article, article that that really ripened the, the scene for conspiracies like white supremacy, like QAnon and other kinds of anti-government ideologies to conflate with cultural Christianity and confuse people into thinking that everything's the same and that by be, that they need to do these things to be a Christian. Am I kind of encapsulating yeah. it? Yes. I, so the, the argument I was making with seeker friendly was that you, you basically were giving people just enough 
um, and they think they've checked, checked the box. And there was a study done by Willow Creek, which is kind of like the, the preeminent um, you know, <laughs> child of, of seeker friendly churches. Um, they did a study in like 2008, I want to say, to assess how they were doing. And they, they were very honest. They were like, we are not creating disciples. Um, and, and of course, that is what Christ called us to is not go get followers to come to a church, um, or go get somebody to listen to your sermon. We were called to go and make disciples. And they, they were very honest that that's, they have not done well with that, that they needed to change their approach. Um, but my, uh, thesis is kind of like, if you've done this, um, initial groundwork where you've invited people in and they, that becomes their community, it's just that they're not like going to the text. They're not reading the Bible. They're not studying scripture. They're not actually learning, um, you know, Hey, in community, you actually, um, have to work through conflict and, and offer forgiveness and be humble and, and go through all of that. You know, uh, they talk about iron sharpening iron. Like it, it can be painful work to be in a biblical community. It's not, it's not all, you know, potlucks and, um, uh, you know, um, you know, baseball, uh, little league baseball, like it, it is kind of, um, it can be gritty if you're doing it right. And of course, in our communities, we, there's that phenomenon of, um, that Robert Putnam calls, uh, in his book, bowling alone, we are increasingly just more and more isolated and doing real community is the kind of like, um, not something that, uh, uh, we prize or do well anymore. And so there's probably societal things that are happening at this time that are feeding into it. And plus you have this rise of a Christian subculture where people are getting a little dose of Christianity, but, but not enough to actually truly transform them. So when somebody comes along, like they've outsourced all of their discipleship, right? Like all I have to do is listen to the next celebrity preacher. And then I'm going to learn like how to have a good life. And it becomes very much about how do I get what I need for me as opposed to, you know, what, what an actual disciple of Christ um, comes to learn is following Christ means you're carrying a cross daily. It's, it's not, it's not about you. It's not about, um, achieving your best life now. Um, so, so there's this, uh, culture that we've created. And I think we've seen it on display in the, in the last two elections and the non-Christian part of America thinks that that's what Christianity is, that it's, um, it's that people that are believing in a health, wealth, prosperity gospel, it's people believing, um, in whatever the next celebrity Christian tells them. And so you had this confluence of, um, uh, charismatic, which is different than evangelical, um, who, um, were prophesying that Trump was all a white virus. Yes. Yeah. Um, and you know, yes, he doesn't look like he is a secular King, but he is going to do great things for us, Israel, the America, the new Israel. Um, it allows, you know, for, there was, uh, there's a, a replacement there's, theology. Yeah, exactly. Replacement theology, dominionism, seven mountain dominionism, all of which are taking parts of scripture and perverting it. And you have to go into the weeds to get into some detail to understand how and where they twisted it and perverted it. And if you are not grounded, if you have just done that surface level, I show up to church and my kids get some good youth 
stuff and and that's what christianity is to you you're open to these quasi spiritual arguments you're open to being told well you know if if you're a good christian you have to vote a republican yeah republican so then when somebody comes along and says i know he doesn't look like um uh, a good christian but he's going to get us the judges that seems like a plausible argument. And so you, you mentioned a lot of people and you don't have the tools necessarily to go any deeper and to say, isn't it, shouldn't there be something more? Or what about the fact that he doesn't treat people kindly? Does that matter at all? Does it matter? Yeah. What about yeah. the fruit of the spirit? Yeah. And, and, um, and look, this is not to diminish. There were some very good grounded teachers who wrestled with this in 2016 and 2020, and they came to a place where they held their nose and voted for him. I, I kind of put that in a separate category than the people that embraced and proudly advocated for him um, to the point where they they made you feel like you, you are a lost soul. I mean, I was I was personally told when I came out in support of Biden that I have blood on my hands. Um, because of uh, the abortion issue. And, and, I, and I understand and appreciate where they're coming from. I, I wish that they could have a, a mindset that was open enough to know that like I, I was very, uh, very much on my knees before the Lord. And I feel very much with a clear, clear conscience that I don't have blood on my hands. And what does that mean? Is it possible that um, believers might be able to have different perspectives on how we vote. And it might not just be one specific issue of abortion. Um, and that's not to minimize the importance of addressing abortion. Uh, but it, it, there was definitely a group think that um, developed over the last few decades around primarily the abortion issue. And when you have an entire subculture that is not grounded in the word, they do not read it for themselves. They follow the whims of whatever the, the latest celebrity teacher is. Um, and by, and I'm not talking like an in-depth Bible study teacher. I'm talking the, you know, how to fix your life in three easy steps teacher. It is not, um, it's not deep. And, and you go to those metaphors of like, what happens to a plant that is not planted by the water? Um, you know, it withers and it dies when, uh, when the heat comes. Um, and we are called to be deeply rooted in God's word. There are consequences when you invested, when the church invested so many years in a seeker-friendly movement that didn't actually disciple people. It left them uh, to use the, the parable that that Christ uh, used of um, scattering the seeds. This, these were the, the seeds that um, sprouted up quickly and withered or were sprouted in the, uh, planted in the rocks and were choked out by life because they didn't have the roots to endure. Right. Wow. Yeah. I feel like we can go for hours here because you're, you're touching on a lot of uh, things that I'm personally grappling with. You know, uh, for example, the abortion issue, is it possible for me to collaborate and cooperate with folks who, uh, you know, I personally believe that life starts at conception, but is it possible for me to collaborate with folks who don't have that belief, but do have a desire for what I would think of as sort of a holistic pro-life, you know, do we care about the immigrant? Do we care about the widow and the orphan? You know, things from Hebrew Bible all the way through what Jesus taught us. Um, so you're, you've given me a great deal to think about, but we only have a few minutes left. And I want to be sure to, to um, for you to tell us and, and our audience 
the work that you're doing with the Republican Accountability Project and the GOP Democracy Scorecard. Yes. So, um, look, I I have always considered myself a security person, not not a political person. It was a huge step for me to speak out during a campaign. I felt like it was the right thing to do. I felt like it was needed for security purposes. I was very concerned what four years of, of Trump might look like from a security perspective. Um, then January 6th happened and, um, you know, it, it just, it was like the culmination of all of my worlds that you had Christian flags, you had neo-Nazi flags, you had MAGA hats. Like it was, all, all of it, all in one place, um, resulting in uh, you know over 140 people injured, five deaths, and the the first time that we've had an invasion on our capital in over 200 years, and the um, uh, peaceful transfer of power, which is a hallmark of democracy, um, was interrupted. Um, and on the other side of that, you had uh, members of Congress who initially condemned what they saw that this is, you know, this was wrong. And, you know, we, we need to be transparent. The election wasn't stolen and time passed and a, you, a handful stayed there, but you started to see almost within 48 hours, like they were all kind of, I could, I could just imagine what their signal or text channels were. What, what is the right answer for this? Trying to figure out what was the messaging that they could use when they so clearly were culpable for what happened on January 6th for for um, talking about an election that was stolen that wasn't stolen. And you started to see them backtrack. And a, a group of us that had worked together in the Republican Voters Against Trump project uh, had a quick conversation. We're like, oh my gosh, they're going to try to memory hold this. They're going to try to pretend this never happened. They're going to try to tell you that, I mean, they did within like as it was happening you had people trying to say this is antifa this is um uh, a false flag operation um and thankfully the indictments are are coming out and the people that are being indicted are telling them like no i'm not antifa so we so there's at least <laughs> some record um in a um uh you know, in the court system to be able to point to to be like no like if there were Antifa actors, I'm not saying they couldn't have been in the, the thousands that were in that crowd, um, but this was not an orchestrated uh, false flag operation. This was um, the Trump community with uh, about what, according to the indictments, about 13 percent um, affiliated with a violent extremist organization like an Oath Keepers or uh, boys. Boys. Boogaloo yeah. boys. Yeah. So, but by and large, the, the majority of those that have been indicted so far were, were not affiliated. They just were uh, diehard MAGA supporters. So um, on the other side of January 6th and watching the um, Republicans start to retreat from uh, what, what they initially condemned, we were like enough, like we, we've got to hold these people accountable. Um, and we, that's where we came up with the project, which the whole purpose is looking towards that 2022 election, because that's how we do accountability in this country. We vote you out if we don't like you. Um, we don't do it through, through violent means. Um, and of course there is a whole judicial system and if appropriate, if there are criminal um, indictments, you know, that's, that's for the justice department, but that the way that the people hold accountable is through our vote. And so we want to make sure that uh, the, the voters in the districts and in the states where you had Republicans that were willing to undermine democracy 
are reminded of that over the next two years leading up to that next election. And for those handful of Republicans that have done the right thing and have taken it has taken tremendous courage tremendous, uh, yeah. to speak out. Um, Donald Trump has promised to primary them. That that means that he's going to try to find a candidate to run against them in their Republican primary next spring. Um, we are going to try to support them um, and uh, through campaigns and ads and and just drawing attention to the fact that they had courage to vote for the country, to vote for the Constitution over their party and over their power. I would encourage everyone to look up Republican Accountability Project, and in particular, the report that you just published, I think, last uh, this week or last week. This week. The, mm-hmm. Yeah, the GOP Democracy Scorecard. And it's, um, you know, it's basically what what did you do when the Texas AG filed a lawsuit to try to overturn mm-hmm. the election? What did you do after January 6th about the Electoral College votes? What did you do about impeachment? There were several things upon which they were scored. Mm-hmm. My personal representative, uh, Republican uh, Mike Garcia, Congressman Mike Garcia, got a D minus because he raised our hopes when he didn't sign on to the amicus brief. Uh, but then January 6th rolls around and impeachment rolls around. And, and just today... Just today, he's he's using just flat out um, dishonest language. I, I that's a whole other podcast. But Republican <laughs> Accountability Project. Now we have some breaking news. <laughs> um, you are joining ABC News. Is that that's right? Right, I am. I, I'm uh, starting um, in May, and I will be a, a contributor for them on a part time basis, uh, working on national security, homeland security type issues. Awesome. Awesome. And Perfect. you have an upcoming book. <laughs> yes. Yes. You guys are like telling all the news. Um, it is uh, you know, this, really on the topic that we just talked about, the intersection of these three worlds, my counterterrorism world, the uh, faith community and um, uh, the the politics and how that all came to a, an explosion point on January 6th. And how did that happen and what do we need to do about it? So I've, I've written a book proposal. It's being shopped around. So uh, somebody get it Exciting. and let's get this book out there. This is so, so needed. And so many people are grappling Absolutely. with these issues that will yeah. be hot to trot to get that book. So let's get you some writing time. Thank Cabin you. in the woods. Nice oh, I like advance, Yeah. And uh, get cracking. Big, I, I'm, excellent. I'm, I'm just ex- really excited to see that uh, that come about. Um, and then, of course, you um, also have a charity that you would love to for people to know about. Tell us more about World Relief. Yeah, so um, I am have been an outspoken um, advocate for the last six months um, on the, some of the immigration issues that we need to correct coming out of the, the Trump administration. And one of them is that I'd like to see the refugee cap increased um, so that the United States can return to its uh, historic tradition of welcoming refugees. And um, the uh, organization World Relief, so so if you go to worldrelief.org, they are one of the non-governmental organizations that partners with the U.S. government to help resettle refugees in the country. It's really important, both from a security as well as just a humanitarian perspective, that when people come here from a strange country through usually very traumatic circumstances, Circumstances that they are welcomed um, through uh, by people with good hearts and you know hospitality to just show them the basics like how to 
figure out how, you know, our plumbing system works and where to go in the grocery store and, you know, how to, you know, how to navigate uh, the town that you're in. Um, that uh, the, the good work of World Relief and, and there are other NGOs that do refugee resettlement, um, they're going to be in high demand and hopefully in the next few years after not having as many people uh, welcomed, um, we're hoping to see those numbers increase. And so if you um, have a heart, definitely check out what they're doing. What if I don't have a heart? Oh, I should have said, I have a heart for refugees is what I'm oh, just You have a heart for refugees. <laughs> Worldrelief.org. It looks, I just took a look at the page and it looks like a really, really uh, worthwhile cause. So we thank you for introducing us to that. Uh, Worldrelief.org. And I am so, my my heart is overflowing and my head is exploding. exploding. With, I, there's so many the things steam coming out of your ears, Corey. to think about. Um, so now that I'm getting my shot uh, tomorrow, in, in about two weeks, if I come to, are you in the DC area? I am. I am. We live out by Dulles airport. So I want to come to DC and I want to take you and your husband out to dinner and oh, I want to have Jessica and her husband out. I invited? Yeah. Totally invited. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think it, it'll be a long day because I have so buying, many more questions. Right, Corey? And there's absolutely. lots of wine, right? hundred percent. It's a write-off. No Manischewitz, no Manischewitz, right? No, no Manischewitz. <laughs> Only the cabs. All right. Thank you so much. Wow, you this guys, is so much. Thanks for having me. So informative, Oh gosh, so what a edifying. privilege. Thank you. Yeah, you guys uh, be well and have a great weekend. You too. Thank you for joining us today. If you appreciate what you've heard here, please go to iTunes or anywhere you get your podcasts. Give us a five-star rating and leave a review. That really helps move us up the chart so others can find out what we're up to here. For Ronnie Nathan, I'm Corey Nathan, and we've been talking politics and religion without killing each other. We'll be back in a few days to do our little part in Tikkun Olam. <laughs>